0: I love this song of worship because it calls us to take hold of the grace and the power of what Christ did on the cross internally and to really feel it and experience it and integrate it into our lives. It's exactly what Paul's going to talk about today in Philippians 3. He's going to say, I want to lay hold of he who laid hold of me. Here's how he says it in chapter 3. Get a hold of who's already got a hold of me. Not that I've already attained. Not that I'm fully perfected. Not that I'm fully mature, he says. Not that I'm already perfected. But I press on. I push forward. I make it a concerted effort to what? To lay hold of something. To lay hold of what? To lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus had laid hold of me. I want to lay hold of fully... The idea, the concept, the reality that he, Jesus, already laid hold of me. What does it mean to see the gospel of Jesus not as the A, B's and C's, but as the A to Z? What does it look like for his grace, that which he laid hold of me, fully integrated into my mind, fully integrated into my eyes, fully integrated into my hands and my feet? That's what Paul wants. So the question I have for myself is, what currently lays hold of me? When I first accepted Christ as forgiver and leader, he laid hold of me. But is the vision of that, is the adoration of that, what currently lays hold of me every day when I wake up? We use phrases like that, don't we? We say, we say well, get a hold of yourself when you get angry. Get a hold of yourself when, when, when you're out of control. Well, how do you get a hold of yourself if you don't have the power source to do it? And what is it that drives you that has caught the affection of your heart? What's laid hold of you? Is it numbers? You have a certain number of of quarterly sales, a certain number of savings. And you get to that number and you thought that would bring you satisfaction, but now the number just goes up? Because there's something about that drive that your heart's beholden to. See, God, the grace of God is the one thing that you can lay hold of that brings you more and more joy, more and more contentment. Not less of it. Think of some of the things that get hold of my heart that are not the grace of God. I know for me, I love storytelling. So sometimes when I'm interacting with somebody, they'll be talking about something that happened that day. And as they're telling their story, I know what I want to do. The right thing to do is to put the needs of others ahead of my own and hear their story, engage in their story, enter into their story. But every time they say something, every third sentence, I come up with a story of my own. And I keep wanting to say, well, finish up so I get to my story. I keep wanting to interrupt. Oh, that's great. You know, same thing happened to me when blah, 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 blah. There's this internal need. Sometimes the desire to entertain or the desire to tell stories, I end up using people as as an audience for my stories instead of really entering into their joy. Because sometimes the things that are good in my life actually take hold of me and keep me from fully embracing the grace of God. I walked into my office about a month and a half ago and I had this note sitting on my desk and it said, Chad, I read this book and I thought of you. I really would love you to pick it up, read it and tell me what you think. So I picked up this book, this white note on the top and I thought, wow, this is a book that somebody read and they thought of me. I wonder what the book's called. Great leaders of history. <laughs> Great preachers of the modern era humility and how I accomplished it. <laughs> so I'm sort of excited that, that, that this is the thing that when somebody thinks of me, they, they, they think this is what Chad's all about. So I take the note and I flip it up and the title of the book is Shut the Hell Up. <laughs> it's apparently about hellish forces and evil forces in your life and how to how to shut them out. But, oh, I was so devastated. <laughs> this is the book that made me think of you. We have cubicles in our office, so uh, every time the communications director or the creative arts director gets too loud, we have a little glass uh, about 18 inches on the top of our cubicle. So I say, hey, hey, I got a book you should read. Got a book you should read. So this has become a real tool in the office. But what it reminds me is that if we're not careful, the good things in our life, our drive, our ambition, our, our desire to be a good husband, a good wife, those good things can actually take hold of you, And become idols in your life. And that's what Paul's going to talk about. Instead of letting those things become the adoration of your heart, take hold of, in order to perfect, in order to grow, in order to mature, you need to look at what are the things in your life, the good things in your life, that have actually become idols and kept you from laying hold of grace fully and completely. So how do you get this get hold of you mindset? He says you're going to have to forge by forgetting what's behind And finding the mind of Christ. And that's really the the outline of the passage we're going to look at. Forget what's behind. Forge ahead. And then find the mind of Christ. Here's how he begins in verse 13. Forget what's behind. Actively forget. And I love this idea because Christian living, growing in Christ, is not a passive, complacent process. If you want to grow, you've got to actively do some things to take hold of and integrate God's grace in your life. Verse 13 says, Brethren... I do not count myself to have apprehended. Again, notice already he is active. This, This word count is to calculate. It's I've calculated what things in my life forfeit me from the grace of God. And I've calculated in my life those things which give me favor with God. I've calculated what it looks like for the grace to appear in this area and this area. And brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended. But here's the one thing I do. Here's the one thing I've thought about. The one thing I've realized, if I want to grow as a follower of Christ, what I need, I've got to forget those things which are behind. To which, you know, I sort of bring up a question, well, what are those things? If this is the one thing you do to grow, well, what is it? Well, we'll get to that in a second. He says, but when I forget those things, that's the one thing I have to do. When I forget those things, then I'm able to reach forward, push forward to those things which are ahead. So before I can enter into the full reality of what God has for me in the future, those things that are are just out of reach that God has for me, I can't get to those until I first forget those things in the past. To which my initial reaction, having heard this passage preached a hundred times in my life, I would think, well, yeah, that's forgetting about your sins. That's forgetting about the bad things you've done, not being covered in shame and difficulties. Forget about the bad stuff because it's covered and pursue the good stuff God has for you. That's actually not what he's saying. How do you know, Chad? Well, here's how you know. When When you're going through a Bible study, you can find a word like this, count, and say, well, does the word count, because that's his point here, does it show up anywhere else in the text? You can go looking for that word. And often Paul will explain himself in a previous passage, and now he's picking up on that idea. So here's what we're looking at again. He is counting, he is forfeiting, he's comprehending, he's thinking about something in the past. So let's go backwards in the passage and find out what that is, and so see if you go back a couple of verses, you see there's three times he uses the word count in chapter three verses seven and eight. So here's the three words. Notice these things. But what things? Oh, here's that phrase again. The things. What things were gain to me? Oh, the things he wants to count are things that used to be his gain. These were good things, not bad things. These weren't sins or shame. These were his reputation that he talked about in the beginning of the chapter, his fame. His good works, his, his Israel-ness, his, his being trained under the best educational system, his, his being trained and his following of the law. He's actually talking about all of his works. Righteousness are the things he's got to forget. Well, that changes the passage, doesn't it? He, what things were gained to me, I used to build my whole reputation on my education. My whole reputation was on whether or not I've been circumcised in the right diet, the right place, and what tribe I was from. Those things I have counted loss for Christ. He's forgetting about his good things. Yet indeed, I also, and there's that word again, count, forfeit, calculate. All things. Which ones? All of them. All things I used to build my reputation on. All things used to give me peace and security that weren't of grace in God. All those things I've counted. There it is again. Loss. And there's the word loss. There's the word loss. Compared to the excellence of the knowledge of Jesus Christ, my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things. By following Christ, I lost my reputation. But By following Christ, I lost my old job. I was sort of a household name. I lost the circles I used to go in. But everything I lost, that used to be how I built up my identity... I consider them nothing. I count them as rubbish. And if you remember last week, we looked at the word rubbish was defecation or dog poop, Or it's the this, is this, is this, is this, is this strongest word you can say, and I can't say it in church, for poo is the word he's using to describe what his good works are compared to grace. You know, what happens is you grow as a Christian. You say, I got the Jesus thing. I accepted Christ in my life. I got that covered. And then we begin to rebuild our life on Jesus plus some good work. And that is the thing you must actively forget. Stop building your life on idolatry. Stop building your life on thinking that Jesus plus beauty makes me a little more acceptable. Jesus plus not doing a certain sin. Jesus plus doing a certain activity or not doing a certain activity makes me a little more righteous than other people. I know for me there's something as I as we as a pastoral team you know, counsel with uh, couples over the years. Almost every time a couple comes into the office, I see myself. Because you see, both of them think they're trying hard than the, harder than the other person. Now I know you don't relate to this, but, but I know for me that oftentimes I get into a season of marriage and I think, you know, I'm really trying harder than Beth is. Now ironically, if you ask her, she'll say she's trying harder than me. So what happens is I am saying, well, you know, you know, we're both graceful, we're both in the marriage together, but, but me, I'm just a little better than you are because I'm trying harder. So, so grace plus me trying harder makes me, you know, better off than you. I don't say it out loud, but in my mind what happens is I create that I am, you owe me because I'm trying harder. And that you owe me attitude comes not from bad works, but from good works. And all of a sudden that becomes the thing that destroys relationships. It's good works added. Sometimes it's our job. I remember the message I did last week. I would finished it about three weeks ago and I was getting behind because I'm working on three new series that are coming up. And I looked at the message, and I looked it over. I said, this is a good message. It's not a great message, but it's a good one. But i got other priorities, and I'm just going to let this one slide. I don't typically do that. My father hated, still hates, inefficient, irresponsible, unfaithful preparation for work. So that has been driven into me in a really, honestly, a very healthy way. I'm not a perfectionist, but I love work, and I love doing it well. My dad used to say, when you're going to speak for 30 minutes, count the number of people in the room, divide it in half. That's how many man hours you're about to either waste or invest in that's the spirit you should bring to your teaching. Having said that, two, three weeks ago, I'm like, yeah, but I can't get to that one. i got other things to go on, so we'll just survive with an above-average message. Well, it became the week before the message, and I found myself back in that thing and saying, no, I really think there's some better stuff. And, and, I, and I went sort of from good to great and really rehearsed it and rehearsed it and worked and did more research. And I got to Friday when I, when I rehearsed through my messages, and I went, man, this is really a great message. I asked myself, well, what, what motivated this? I want to please Jesus. I want to do my very best for him. Because I thought I made a conscious decision not to work on this one anymore. And so I actively thought about it. What's driving this? Is it grace? Is it wanting to please God? Do my very best? I went, oh, I figured it out. My hero, the person who impacted me in ministry, Mr. Carl Sutter, was speaking last week at the 10 o'clock and 11 o'clock service. And he would know me from Adam, although he's impacted my life greatly. I sent him a few notes over the years talking about how he impacted me. And I realized somewhere in the middle of the week, my hero would be hearing me speak for the first time in my life. I better step up the game! And I realized, wow, instead of being driven by a a desire to be responsible or or honoring of God, it was actually a, a bit of pride or ego. Hey, see, there's nothing wrong with Wanting to do well in your job, but when that becomes your motivation, that becomes your idol, that becomes your source of identity, and, and, and you're you're good if you give a good sermon, and you're bad if you give a bad sermon. You're you're good if you have good results, and you, you're not quite as you know, righteous. You're not quite as acceptable if you don't. That's what Paul's getting at here. I read a book this year called what got you here won't get you there and it talks about some of these tendencies we have what the bible would call them flesh tendencies that before you have your identity in christ you begin to sort of shore up your identity with these things and what happens as a christian is you come into your christian life if you don't actively work on those previous flesh patterns they, <laughs> they will just continue in and on in your christian life now these are some good ones what got you here won't get you there do you need to win too much is that drive become not something that's just good out of stewardship, but it is a drive that's become an idol? Do you have the desire to add too much value, that inner editor in you, that every time somebody comes, you've got to just give your, your two cents worth? There's something about you're just driven to say, yeah, I want to tell you how I feel about that. Let me tell you what I think about that. And that's what got you here, but it may not get you there. And what is it that's driving that? Why is it you have to add value to everything? Passing judgment. Why do you have to be so critical? What is it in you that drives it? Destructive comments. Do you find yourself, instead of being a good listener and celebrating with people and entering into their grief or entering into their pain, do you find yourself saying, yeah, yeah, no, but, well, however, or clinging to the past? These are the kind of things Paul had to overcome. He talked about a guy who wanted to win too much or add too much value. And yet those things led him to a place of persecuting the Jesus and God he thought he loved. So Paul uses this metaphor of sports. So look at the words here. Now you're going to see this all through the next part of the passage. It's this sports metaphor that he's using and driving into. He says, I'm forgetting those things which are behind, and I'm driving, I'm reaching. Like like an athlete reaches forward and drives forward to the next thing. I want what God has for me. I want what it looks like for grace to flow out in this area of my life. I'm reaching forward like a runner, reaching for the line. I'm reaching forward to the next thing God has for me. The sports metaphor saying I'm reaching forward, I'm moving forward, I'm driving forward. What does my new life look like when my identity is in grace and not in my works? Where I really am accepted. And I really am forgiven. And my shame is really covered. What does that look like? These words like reaching forward, these sports metaphors that he's playing on, come to what's going on in the culture. See, in those times, Hellenism was really big. And Hellenism, with Alexander the Great and the Greeks, came along and it said your whole life should be about comfort and convenience. And ultimately, the human body and the human mind is the ultimate expression of truth. Even today, we get ideas like relativism or postmodernism from this idea. Because God doesn't tell you what's right and wrong. Mankind's reason tells you what's right and wrong. And so you would go to the gymnasium. They look like these. They're all over the place. The gymnasium was a combination of a workout center and a university. It was both. It's where you'd go to school because part of the human being being the highest platform of truth is that your mind had to be crisp and your body had to be crisp. So you're working out all day. You're working your mind all day. And all of a sudden, good things like knowledge and beauty became ultimate things in that culture. So if you were training for the Olympics or training for sport, you would go to the museum constantly and work your body and work your body and work your body. And work your mind. And what that produced was a culture that was obsessed with beauty. It produced a culture that was obsessed with how you looked. It pr- produced a culture of people who were driven to be the best that they could be out on the out on the sports field. And you think about the similarity with us today. You think about a culture that has obsession with eroticism, obsession with how we look And then you either are driven to try and fulfill that or you feel insecure because you don't. Those who don't find themselves with terrible self-image. They find themselves with cutting and all these terrible things that are going on in society. So you'd think Paul would say, hey, everything going on in the gymnasium is bad. Stay out of the gymnasium. But instead, what he's going to do is he's going to say, you know that drive you see in the gymnasium? That drive for beauty? That drive for knowledge? though they're not driving after the right things, or not the ultimate things, that same drive is what you need to have toward the grace of God. When I say reach forward, I mean that drive that says, I want everything God has for me in grace. I want to reach forward to what He has for me. I was listening to a story on video this week of Scott Hamilton. He won the 1984 Olympics. And he talked about... As a kid, he had this sickness they couldn't diagnose So he found his identity in being the sick kid. Eventually, he got well enough that he got released and he picked up figure skating. He got really good at it. And early on in his life, as he was becoming better and better at it and finding his identity no longer in being the sick kid, now in being the great skater, his mother died. And she was a great source of strength to him and comfort for him. He won the Olympics and he said, yeah, it's amazing. You, you practice for 10 years and your whole life will be defined by whether or not you can perfect, perfectly execute a four and a half minute routine in front of two billion people. He said, I got lucky enough that I did and I became famous. He goes, and then I got cancer. He goes, I'm probably more famous now for my cancer than I am for what I did on the ice. He said, and I fought and I fought and I fought and I became a cancer survivor and that became my identity. That awakened some questions in me. One of the questions that awakened in me is, why did I survive and my mom didn't? And that set me on a spiritual journey to find something to put my identity in, besides fame, besides sickness, besides cancer, besides being the overcomer of cancer. That's when I met my wife and she brought me to church. I've never been around church, but the pastor introduced me to church by saying, the thing you got to realize is, Christianity is not necessarily a philosophy or religion. It's something that happened in history, so you can study it and see how that impacts your life. He said that was a good start. And he began to discover who God was and how God forgives us and how God leads us and what it means to find your identity, not in the great successful things you've done, but instead in the acceptance of God. Then a few years later, he got cancer again. His doctor came to him and said, you've got a brain tumor. And now he's married. Despite having testicle cancer, he was able to have a child at a 14 month. He said, how do you tell your wife that you have a brain tumor? So he came and he sat down with his wife. And he said, honey, I just came from the doctor. And I don't know how to say this, but I have a, I have a brain tumor. And he just began to weep. She grabbed his hands and says, let's pray right now. That we're going to depend on God to get through this. We're going to depend on him to be our strength. Him to be our source. He's going to be the thing we hold to in the midst of the, the difficulty. And he said that became a defining moment for him in that moment. That, I don't know how the, what the future holds, but this is how we're going to get through this. We're going to depend on God fully and completely on his grace and his power and his leadership in the midst of this. So they drill a hole in his head and they go down and they take a little biopsy of his tumor and they pull it out. They discover that this tumor is the tumor he's had actually since he was a little boy. And all of a sudden he realized that this tumor... Undiagnosed is why he never grew too tall, why he was always about five foot four, five foot six, because his tumor had stunted his growth. This was the tumor that God used to get him into skating. This is the tumor that God used to lead him ultimately to find fame. This is the tumor that God ultimately used to use him to come and find God in his life and God's grace in his life. And he actually said something so profound in this interview. He says, I'm thankful for God for the tumor. Because God used that tumor. To help me experience and find the real identity and the real acceptance and the real strength I need from God. Similar to what God did with Paul, Paul. God used blindness, physical blindness on the roads of Damascus to get him to take his eyes off all of his credentials and finally find what he really needed, which was the grace of God. And that's why Paul is saying in this first part of the passage, I forget, actively forget those things in the past, and therefore I forge ahead. Here's a sports metaphor again. I press on. I press toward. I'm going toward the goal. Take that drive of the gymnasium, but don't drive toward status or fame. Drive toward grace. Drive toward the prize. There's nothing wrong with ambition. There's nothing wrong with drive. Just drive and be ambitious about the things that matter. The things that ultimately matter. The upward call of God in Christ Jesus. This idea of prizes is something that's all through the Scripture. In fact, in uh, the New Testament, Paul talks regularly about the Bema Seat of Christ, or the Judgment Seat of Christ. Now, that's different from the Great White Throne Judgment. So, the Great White Throne Judgment is for those who are not followers of Christ... At the end of their life, their whole life, they said, I'm a good person. And God, I want to prove to you I'm a good person. So God gives them a chance to try and prove they're a good person. That's the great white throne judgment. At the end of the great white throne judgment, everybody gets a fair trial. Everybody fails a fair trial, but God gives an impartial fair trial to everyone to prove whether or not their good works really outweigh their bad works. But for the Christ follower, the prize is different. The prize is standing before the judgment seat of Christ, different from the great white throne judgment. And there God will reward us for faithfulness. He'll reward us for pressing on to experience the grace. He'll reward us for the times in which we were faithful, when it was hard to be faithful. He'll reward us and give us prizes for loving the unlovable, for suffering for his sake. Great is your reward, Jesus says. You'll be rewarded ten, twenty, even a hundredfold for your obedience. And Paul says there is nothing wrong with being motivated by being reward, rewarded by our Savior. He's like, I'm so motivated by that. I think every day, how can I at the end of my life, not just, just want to get in by the skin of my teeth. I want to get in and say, I want to hear the words of my, my Heavenly Father say, You got the prize. In fact, this idea of prize at the end of the events, think of a wreath. You'd have these wreaths put over your head as an example of a prize. Those who had achieved, those who had gotten everything, and those who had accomplished great things. But the irony of the gospel is the way you get the the prizes from God is by realizing that He is the one who did it all. And the more you get in touch with the reality of His grace in your life, and you press on toward finding out that abiding in Him is the place of peace, that's where you find the prize. You know, for all of us, we're driven by rewards. We're driven by this idea. And Paul says, yeah, but be, be driven by that reward mindset you have. But what you want is the greater reward. Remember, Jesus says, hey, when you pray, you can pray out loud for people to say, wow, what a great prayer. And you will have your reward. Nice prayer. Or you can pray in secret. And my Father in heaven will reward you. You can fast and you can look really gloomy. up and fasted for a month. I'm really spiritual. And people say, wow, he's really spiritual. And you will have your reward. Or you can press on to not letting people know you're seeking God. Not letting know people that it is hard, but you are pressing on to be the best spouse you can during a difficult season. To be the best parent you can during a time when your kids are acting in ways that they shouldn't act. God will reward you. When you're taking care of parents who are are going through difficult times and they are as crabby as ever and they don't know they're crabby. They're the emperor with no clothes. You can't tell them they're crabby because they're like, oh, it's not me, it's you. Okay. Great is your reward. Press on toward the prize and know that that which is done in secret, he will reward you. I think one of the challenges we have as Christians, and certainly had in that time, is how do we integrate or how do we... How do we have this mindset of grace and purity and want everything God has for us, want to be obedient to God and everything he has for us, while at the same time acknowledging we live in a culture that's a lot like the Greeks and Romans? It's obsessed with things that are totally upside down from a Christian worldview. I think it leaves us with three choices. If we're going to forge ahead, we can either imitate the culture, we become like the world around us, and there's no distinct difference between us and the world. We can isolate from the culture. And this is what many times followers of Christ say, well, let's let's pull away from the culture. Let's form the holy huddle and let's pray for Jesus to come back and fix what's broken out there. It's much easier to do isolate or imitate. Well, fine. God covered it all anyway. Might as well just go sin. Or stay away from the bad people. The darkness is out there. And we have what's called light flight. All the light flies away from the darkness. The challenge of forging ahead, the challenge of of, of being what God wants us to be in the world is not imitate, not isolate, but to integrate into the culture. Over in Turkey, there's an area of Sardis where they found these pagan temples. I mean, just unbelievably large, huge pagan rituals going on there with eroticism and, and, and the Greek gods and the Roman gods. All these things were celebrated. And there was a particular a Christian group who decided they were going to build a synagogue right in the middle of what used to be a pagan ritual. They said, we're going to plant this value system. We're going to plant this new way of living right in the middle of this pagan culture. And That's what God is calling you and I to be. So the world can see, what does the light, what does the grace, what is forging ahead with this this value system of grace look like? What does it look like in the kitchen? What does it look like in the boardroom? What does it look like in the bedroom? What does it look like in your life where our friends are seeing what the grace worked out daily as, as they see us forging ahead and pressing forward in the midst of a dark and decaying and dying world? To which I say, well, how do you do this, though? Paul says, well, there's only one way to do it. You've got to find the mind of Christ. Therefore, therefore, after you forget those good things that you built your life on, and after you say, I am pressing forward to have every bit of grace God has for me, if you want to be mature, have this mind. If anything you think otherwise, God will reveal it even this to you. Nevertheless, To the degree that we've already attained or already matured. If you want to keep maturing, let us walk, let us act out, let us experience by the same rule, let us be of the same mind. He says, mind twice. So, the way you do this is you've got to have this particular mindset this I want to get a hold of that which got a hold of me mindset. The I want to do everything to fully understand what happened when I was justified. So again, if you want to know how to interpret this, you say, well, I could guess what the word mind means, to have this mind. But if you look at the word mind, you can do, go to Bible Gateway or do a commentary and search the word mind. Say, did Paul mention this word any other time in the passage? And sure enough, he did. Back in chapter 2, he tells us what this mind is. What does it mean to have the mindset of Christ? This is how you grow as a Christian. Let this mind that Paul's calling to us in chapter 3 be in you. Which is also in Christ Jesus. Who being in the very form of God. Did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Though he had the right to be right. Though he had the right to demand his own way. Though he had the right to demand that he was the center of attention. Though he had the right to say, hey, me, me, me. I'm what it's all about. Focus on me. He had every right to do that. But instead, he made himself of no reputation. He gave up his reputation He gave up his comfort. He gave up convenience of living in heaven eternally in abundant joy. And he took the form of a bondservant. He adapted himself to other people. He adapted himself for our needs. He adapted himself to what we needed, not what made his life easier. He came in the likeness of man. He was found in the appearance of a man. he humbled himself. Well, how humble did he be? Well, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death. But why did he become obedient to the point of death? Because in the garden he said, I don't want to do it. I don't want to go here. But he pressed on. He reached forward in the garden and said, I don't want to do it. It's going to be tough. It's going to be hard. But not my will, but yours be done. And I look at this phrase and say, is that my mindset? That I want to become obedient to the point of, ooh, no, let's cross that out. I want to become obedient to the point of convenience. I'm going to obey you, God, as long as it's easy. God, I want to obey you as long as it doesn't affect my checkbook. God, I want to obey you as long as I don't have to change my attitude toward that guy who did that thing to me. God, God, I want to obey you as long as I don't have to forgive that person. God, I want to obey you as long as I don't have to put my spouse's needs ahead of my own when she's being so ornery right now. I want to obey you as long as I don't have to respect my husband because he's not very respectable right now. The mindset that grows you is the mindset of Christ. He was willing to be obedient to the point of death to put your needs ahead of His own. So we too should put the needs of others ahead of our own because that's what it is to put on the mind of Christ. Even to the point of death. Death on a cross. I think that's what Paul is coming back to that. He's saying... You could spend the next week just reading those verses over and over again, and saying, "What does that mindset, that other-centered, to the obedient to the point of death mindset, look like?" This week, this Monday, this Tuesday, during this meeting, during this interaction, during this conversation, what does it look like to have that mindset this week? That's how you grow as a Christian. Which is why Paul comes back to the sports metaphor, and he says, "Run, run to experience." Everything God's given you. Run. Experience everything He's given you. Everything. So I want to give you a metaphor that they use in the New Testament. You see, back during those days, the original audience for the biblical books were Jews. They grew up reading the Torah, many of them had the Torah memorized. In doing so, in memorizing the Bible, the ultimate example of discipleship, of growing, was that of Elijah. If you wanted to grow as a Christian, if you want to be a disciple, you want to be like the rabbi. And being like the rabbi meant that you wanted to pursue the kind of passion and zealousness that Elijah had. You see, Elijah was the one who, who called down and said, Prophets of Baal, on this side, I'm on this side, let's call down God's fire upon. And God came upon him such that he outran Ahab's chariot. This guy was a runner. This guy was infused with God's power. And so in those days, a New Testament writer would say, if you want to be a disciple, have the kind of passion Elijah had. But now they've moved from a a Jewish culture to a Greek-Roman culture. So how do you communicate differently to a different culture? How to have that kind of passion for God? Well, all around the ancient world in the first century were these giant arenas for the Olympics, for the games. And so there's these metaphors, these competitions all over the place where folks would run. As you entered into the arena, you'd come across these massive columns. You'd come into the arena. This particular arena will sit over 40,000 people would come to celebrate the games. So the New Testament writers would very much have understood. Maybe would have come to these events. They would know about these events. In fact, there's one during Jesus' time that was right near uh, the sea. This one was actually one that Jesus would have visited and his disciples would have known about. So they said, what if we took this idea and we use that as a metaphor to help people understand the zeal and passion you should have for God? So that's what they did. So what would happen is as you entered the arena, it was more than just competing for a prize. It was more just competing so that you could show that your body looked good. The emperor himself would walk out. As he was coming out into the arena, he would announce that he had arrived. Demetrius saw himself as God himself, and the games were a way to declare to everyone that he was God and that he should be worshipped. As he walked out, there would be the, the priests would come out, and they would, they would subscribe worth to him and call him God. He was not only God, he was a son, an imitation of God. And the choir would sing, and the crowds would cheer, "God has arrived. One of the gods has arrived." And as they arrived, they cheered and they celebrated. The games were about to begin, and he would unroll his scroll he would declare the games were open to bring him glory. And as the crowd cheered, he would say that there would be punishments for such and such behavior and there would be rewards for such and such behavior. And then the runners would come out. But see, you weren't just running for a prize or for competition. You were running to declare that your gods were the best. When you ran before the arena, you were saying, I am running to let you know that it's my God who gives me power and strength. I'm a runner of Zeus. I'm a runner by God's, And we want everybody in the arena to know how powerful our gods are. We want everyone around us to see that our source, our might, are the gods within us that we depend on. So it's interesting that the New Testament writers take this metaphor in this pagan culture and say that is the mindset of a follower of Christ. Run. Run! Remember Galatians. Oh, you stopped running the race. Fight the fight. Run the good race. Think about Hebrews. Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off the weight that so easily entangles us, the sin that so easily entangles us, and press on. Fix our eyes on Jesus. That surrounding you in your walk, surrounding you in your life right now, are are a cloud of witnesses from the past. It's your grandmother out in the stands. She prayed for you for years. It's your great-grandfather up in the stands. He's the first one in this country to make a decision to come to know Christ. And it's been passed on to you. Peter, James, Esther, they're all cheering for you and saying, run, run, run the race. We poured everything out. We came into the the, the arms of our Savior completely spent and said, this is everything we had. We gave our entire life to be with you to run the race so the whole world would see us Monday through Friday, would see us in our life and say, that's what grace looks like. Our God is great. Our God is powerful. I'm not just a great runner. I am a runner for the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That's why I run. That's the kind of zealousness. That's the kind of passion that the New Testament writers are calling us to. If we're going to get hold of That which got hold of us. Let's pray. God, I just confess that I am passionate about a lot of things. That I am zealous about a lot of things. But I do not have the kind of Olympic zealousness towards your word, towards your grace, toward fully understanding everything you gave to me and bestowed upon me at the cross. I confess personally and I confess corporately as a church, God, that we want to go into training. We want to forget those things we built our life upon and we want to push forward to have the mind of, of Christ within us, that you would transform us and transform the world, that we would run in such a way to bring glory to you. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We'll see you all next week as we continue our series in Philippians. If you uh, are new to church, we'd like to greet some folks. Third door on your left is the hearth room. If you came prepared to give, there's some offering boxes on the way out. Thanks again.